I'm Betty Salonik, CEO and founder of Accelerate Investors. Welcome to our podcast, Chief Investment Officer Conversations, which brings to you what is on top of mind for the world's leading CIOs. In our conversations, we will explore their background, their current investment strategies, and their global outlook. Welcome to part two of my interview with Charmel Maynard, Chief Investment Officer and Treasurer of the University of Miami. In this episode, he shares with us how the endowment leverages its illustrious board when making investment decisions. He provides advice for emerging managers. And Charmel also discusses with us the mindset of pushing oneself to achieve one's full potential. Before diving into my conversation with Charmel, I'd like to invite all listeners to join Accelerate Investors July 28th and 29th for our Women Investment Leaders Symposium. This symposium will feature leading investors, including chief investment officers and men, in discussions on private equity, venture capital, real estate, leadership, and other topical themes. I'd like to also thank our lead sponsor, TPG, for their support of our symposium. For more information, go to accelerateinvestorsny.com forward slash Excel Women. That's A-C-C-E-L-W-O-M-E-N. The link is also in the episode description. Now on to today's conversation. I hope you enjoy. The University of Miami has several illustrious trustees, such as Jorge Perez of the Related Group and Alex Rodriguez, who recently joined forces with a private equity firm to invest in hotels. How does the endowment leverage your trustees' investment expertise? That's a great question. It's actually one of, the, one of my favorite parts of my job is getting a chance to interact with these absolute luminaries in, in their space. You mentioned uh, Mr. Perez the related group, you know, there are people like Stuart Miller from, from Lennar, Richard Fain from, from Royal Caribbean, um, and, and a slew of other very, very intelligent um, board members and trustees. You know, we would be, we'd be dumb if we weren't, you know, leaning on their experience and their knowledge. So we, we regularly call them up if we're looking at, at, at a space or at a manager, if it's in their space and say, hey, what, you know, what do you guys think of this, of this, uh, of this program? This, uh, like you said, A-Rod and is partnering with, with, a, with a group called CGI, I believe, to partner with Hilton to, to buy distressed hotels or opportunistic um, priced hotels. We'd be, uh, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't call, you know, you know, Mr. Perez and say, hey, what do you think about uh, the opportunity of getting opportunistic real estate right now? So we, we use our, our investments committee and our board often to, to, to kick the tires, essentially, right? We, we want a diligence managers and strategies from as many different angles as we can get to try to try to get an edge. And that can be, you know, using our board, that could be, you know, calling the sales desk at JP Morgan, where I worked all the time and say, hey, you know, what is your experience with this private equity group? You've lent to them for the last three buyouts or calling the sales desk and say, hey, what do you think of this hedge fund, you know, as a, as a sales guy or girl? So, we, we try to use every tool in, in our toolkit to, to get an edge. Great. And I'm curious, is the endowment precluded from investing with your trustees firms? So it's not, we're not precluded, but we do have very strict conflict of interest policies in place. So we would have to take it through a full process to make sure that it's not um, tripping any conflict of interest. But, you know, more than not, we, we try to try to stay away from those conflicts. But I wouldn't say that we're precluded. We would just have to run it through a pretty... Um, extensive policy and and, and, um, and and committee. Got it. 
Can you share with us the University of Miami exposure to emerging markets and where you see opportunities, especially given that the pandemic has hit emerging countries' economies hard? And is there any particular interest in Latin America, the Caribbean, given the Miami connection to these regions? Yeah, so so unfortunately, Betty, we don't we don't publish exactly what our breakdown is in public equity, but I can say, you know, it's a smallish percentage. I mean, we, we have the majority of our of our of our money in, in domestic, um, whether it's large cap, mid cap, or small cap, and then the second large is, is an international developed. So we have a very small portion um, allocated to EM, and honestly, a lot of that is is because of the volatility, right? And you know, we we, we think about. You know, for the University of Miami, you know, for our needs, do we think that we can find uh, similar risk-adjusted returns in, in, in other regions or in other strategies? That being said, we do think that there is value in the emerging markets, like you mentioned, because they have been hit particularly hard. And if you're looking from a purely relative value standpoint, and again, you know, I grew up on the debt side of the world where relative value is everything. If if this house on this block is worth X and the house across the street is worth Y, you know, why is that? And let's talk about it. And there's a lot of times where, you know, call it, there might be an automaker in the U.S. versus automaker in, in India. And one is, you know, the Indian company is way less valued. Why does that make sense? You know, we don't think that makes sense. We want to be able to capitalize on that. So we are purely allocators. We, you know, we, we're purely into this, you know, the Swenson model where we think our time is best served with finding the best managers and let them make their decisions. Um, so, you know, we don't currently have any region-specific um, investment managers. So we, we do have EM managers who, you know, can freely go across uh, the, the various emerging market um, regions and, and, you know, don't have to hold themselves to a benchmark. And, and we usually rely on them to do their, to do their, own, um, to do their own diligence. But um, you know, we have looked at, at various, you know, region specifics, both in Latin America and, and Asia as well. But ultimately, where we are right now, we, we prefer to just hire the best managers that we can find and let them go find the best and most attractive regions to invest in. Accelerator Investors is highly focused on accelerating emerging managers and in particularly diverse managers uh, to obtain institutional capital. I'm wondering, what's your best advice for emerging managers who want to obtain institutional capital? Yeah, no, that, that it's a great question. I get that question often. I think there's a couple pieces of advice, Betty. I, th- I think one of them is, and I give this advice to everyone, not, not just emerging managers, which is do as much research as you can on the investments committee of the institution that you're pitching. I think that will... will I think that will dictate and tell a lot about what the strategy is, what the asset allocations are, where do I, where can I, you know, fit in the best. So, for example, using us, if you were an emerging private equity manager and you were looking, you know, maybe four or five years ago and you saw that we were very under allocated, you may want to say, okay, this may not have the highest, you know, hit rate, right? And and, and maybe I want to talk to them about, hey, well, you know, what are your views on the, on the asset class? Is there a specific reason why you're so under allocated? Um, and come in prepared, right? You know, because you never know, you might catch that LP right in the expansion phase and, and you might fit right in. The other thing is you might realize that they have an emerging market, uh, sorry, emerging managers program, right? And that's obviously going to be a lot more 
you know, you have a higher chance of, of has, having success if that if that um, institution has an emerging manager program. So I'd say, you know, you can you can get a lot of information off the Internet and, and being prepared and also setting your expectations with who you're pitching, I think, will go a long way. I think we find a lot of times that that emerging managers come to us and they have, you know, their pitch and they're ready to go. But uh, and I know it's tough because you're, you're pitching to dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of LPs. But that extra 30 minutes of, of tailoring it to that specific LP, I think sometimes will go a long way. I agree with that advice. In the recent precedence report for the University of Miami, you highlighted the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the investment industry. How do you ensure that the managers you work with actively demonstrate these values, such as by hiring, retaining, and promoting diverse talent? Uh, thank you for that question, Betty. Diversity is, has always played a role in, in, in how we allocate um, our strategy and, and you know, we think that it adds to the overall return of the portfolio. Uh, we, we, we decided to codify that last fall and, and sort of we included, it's kind of a multifaceted three-prong approach. So the first one is engagement. And this, I think, directly gets to your question, which is, you know, how do you help managers or how do you, how do you rank them or, or, or rate them on sort of their commitment to diversity? And I think... You know, every firm is starting from a different place, and I think it's all necessary, right? I think everyone is trying to do their best from different angles, and I don't think there's one right answer. So, you know, one of our managers might have a goal saying, hey, we want to double our, our, our investment professionals in five years. Uh, the other one might be further along, and they have, you know, 15% or whatever investment professionals and say, hey, but, you know, we want to add a board member. That, 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 that is a person of color. And so I think everyone is starting from a different place. So it's going to take work on our end as well to, to track all of them. You know, we have 40 plus managers in our portfolio and the endowment. And we know it's going to take extra work, but we think it's worth it. And so, you know, what we've, uh, what we've committed to do is, you know, we've, we've sent out a survey, a diversity survey that's very in-depth in terms of what does your workforce look like? What's ownership look like? What does leadership look like? so on and so forth, and, and specifically asking, what is your commitment to diversity? Talk, talk to us about policies, talk to us about the brokers you use, talk to us about investment banks you use, lawyers you use. And ultimately, we're going to use the programs and, and, and the targets that they set for themselves to hold them accountable, right? So if over a 12-month period, we don't deem them um, to have made substantial success, and you know, substantial is obviously you know, a, a subjective word, we hold the right to, to put them on a watch list or, or, or think about replacing them with a, with, a, with a suitable replacement. So, you know, we're serious about it. We, our, our managers know that, that diversity is a very import, important, you know, value for the University of Miami, and we're going to put our money where our mouth is. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm curious, have you put a manager on a watch list and what happened if so? Not yet. So we just passed this in, in October of last year. Um, so, you know, the clock, you know, we're just into the first year of this, um, you know, we're excited, it's excited to see how it takes, uh, takes fruition and, uh, you know, let's check back in October and, and I'll tell you if we've had to put any, anybody on a watch list, but, you know, we think that, you know, everyone is, has met this, this charge, I think with open arms, uh, I think everyone is fired up and wants to, wants to do the right thing. So, you know, we're cautiously optimistic that, that we're going to get the results that, that we think, um, you know, the university and, and the industry deserve. 
but but time will tell. I actually did speak to a pension fund on the West Coast, and they're a small pension fund, but they also have a watch list, and they put a a mega, or actually specifically, they put BlackRock on their watch list, and it made a difference. So it, it can make a difference. Yeah, we think. Look, we, like I mentioned, it, it's going to take you know a multitude of different initiatives to to solve you know social and racial injustice. We think engagement can have the quickest and the most widespread, you know, impact because you know we're a billion three. Uh, you know, other endowments are five billion, ten billion dollars, and so so you think about having the the the, the quickest or leveraging the the, the impact uh, the quickest. Uh, and we think engagement is one of them. But that being said, the other two prongs for us are are two is opening up. The pathway for for minority and women-owned businesses to to compete for business at the University of Miami, and like I said, that's going to take work on our end. That's going to take work um, on our consultants' end, um, and we need to hold um, ourselves accountable. And how we're doing that is third prong is we we have a, a, an absolute threshold for African American managers that we want to see our, our our portfolio get to 13%, which is more than doubling from where we were at the time of the meeting. Um, by May of 2022. So, you know, we're, we want to hold ourselves accountable and we think we do that by by writing a number down on a piece of paper. You know, is it the right number, Betty? I can't tell you that. But what I can say is it's the first step and we, we see it as a, as a floor, not a ceiling. And, you know, it allows us to, to, to act with intention, right? When we go through the rest of this year, this in our fiscal year, which ends in May of, uh, of this year, and then we start F- FY22, uh, so that it doesn't sort of, you know, get lost in, in, in whatever the next, uh, you know, issue that might come up is. And how did you arrive at 13%? Yeah, so we looked at a couple of things. So we, we looked at our peers. You might remember that the congressman, Congressman Cleaver and, and Kennedy sent out a letter to the top 20, I believe, endowments and, and, and implored them and encouraged them to, to issue the diversity statistics. So, you know, we looked at that data and sort of, you know, if, if you stripped out the people who were very vague about what their diversity looked like, um, it was it was roughly 13 percent. That actually fit really well into into where we were, uh, which I said, you know, we were just, you know, just under half of that, um, you know, at the time. So we said, hey, doubling um, to 13 percent, we think is achievable. Uh, we think it, it, it is aggressive in a year and a half, but we think it's achievable and it puts us at least in line with our peers. I see that Betty is the first step that that is not, you know, I'm not expecting a pat on the back or gold star for that. I think that is a minimum, it's a floor, but again, it gives us a target to reach for, and then we can go from there. Makes sense. Uh, One of the things that Excel Investors says is that we would like investment management, at least in the U.S., to be more representative of our population. So, for example, Black and Latino people make up over 30% of the population. So ideally, we'd love to see at least that percentage represented in in investment management. I agree, completely agree. And I think, you know, making sure that, that we hold ourselves accountable and writing numbers down on pages uh, on paper, sorry, and, and having the buy-in from our investments committee and our and our board, you know, is extremely important. And I think, you know, I'm very fortunate to work for an institution where uh, we place a lot of importance on on diversity. And you know, that charge to, to to do better, you know, comes straight from the chair of our board to our board to our president, all the executive leadership, which which gives me the air cover and, and the power to go out there and and hopefully hopefully execute. 
And now it's time for our CIO to CIO question. This question is from Alex Donier. He is the Chief Investment Officer of the New York City Retirement System. He says the following, if you could wave a magic wand and solve one problem in the world today, what would that be? You know, so, so I, I was thinking a lot about it, Betty, since we spoke last and, and, and you told me, uh, you know, some of the, some, some of the questions. You know, I think that the easy one uh, and the most um, top of mind is, is the pandemic, right? And, and um, but I think where I landed was was global warming, and I think both of them have have similar uh, similar characteristics in that they're blind to to who you are. Now, obviously, or, or at least I think I think you know both the pandemic and global warming are affecting people at different uh, different ways and. Um, you know, we see sort of, you know, definitely racial gaps and, and, and wealth gaps on how people are being affected. But uh, it is, in theory, agnostic to, to, to race, gender, so on and so forth. And it's affecting everyone um, in, in, in this world right now. So, you know, living in Miami where, you know, rising sea levels is a real issue. You know, we've seen the sea rising, you know, several inches over the last um, you know, a couple decades, and they think that it's going to rise another six inches roughly over the next nine years or so. You know, I would say I, I would wave a magic wand and and, uh, and get rid of global warming. And now moving on to a few personal questions. What is a book you would recommend to our listeners? So a book that, that I read a couple of years ago that, that has stuck with me is Principles by Ray Dalio. I think obviously is a finance professional Ray Dalio is is very well known uh, for what he's built at Bridgewater but I think it's just a great book for life as well and I think that everyone should should make it an intention to to write down what they think their principles are now that list I think is is going to be is going to be evolving and changing as, as, as you continue to grow as a human being and as a person but I think it makes life a lot easier when you have a set of principles to be able to look at problems through some sort of prism. And reading that book, I thought, gave me the the, 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 the goal of writing down my own principles. And uh, so far, it's been, it's been really helpful. But, but I highly uh, recommend it, you know, whether you're in finance or not, to, to read that. I have the book sitting on my shelf. I'll have to open it. <laughs> Check it out. And like, you know, it's three different parts. So you can read, you know, how he built Bridgewater, about his personal life. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those things you can read it in parts. You don't, you don't need to read it, you know, all in, in, in one fail swoop. What are your investment strategies for your personal portfolio? <laughs> so my investment strategy for my personal portfolio is a lot different from how we manage the endowment. I, I am extremely aggressive, uh, Betty. And I think, you know, I think about it, you know, I'm currently 36 years old. Uh, so my risk appetite is a lot higher. So you know, if, if I am in equities, it's, it's usually high growth equities, tech, but I also have, um, you know, high appetite for, for a lot of, of private investments. So whether it's funds, whether it's startups, um, you know, I have a lot of allocations there as well. So I, I'm definitely high risk, high reward at this, at this current moment. Got it. And makes good sense. What is your favorite story or moment of experiencing cultural diversity? This was another question that, that, that I was thinking and I couldn't really figure out a good good answer and then and then you know I was walking my dog and you know I, I would say my experience is growing up in Trinidad. You know Trinidad is an extremely multicultural island 
um, where roughly uh, you know a quarter of the people are are, are Chinese or Asian, um, a quarter are, are are African descent, a quarter are, are Indian descent, and a quarter are ca- call it European descent. So. Myself personally, uh, my mom is half Indian, half Chinese. My dad is black. And so growing up and you sit down for lunch and you have fried rice um, with with curried chicken, with, you know, macaroni pie and, and something else. I think just growing up there has given me a, a very high appreciation for different cultures, for different religions. Um, going to school with, you know, with people who did not necessarily look like me, but we were all friends you know, made me appreciate different um, cultures and different people so that when I moved permanently to the United States, it, ha- it helped me appreciate different people. Again, I went to a boarding school and it was actually quite international. And I had friends from all different countries and, and friends from different all different races. And that, that I, I hold very near and dear to my heart that, you know, I want different perspectives. I want people who think differently than me. I don't want, I don't want any sort of mass thinking with, with the friends that I have. I want people who are going to challenge what I think because I think that's how you're going to find the best ideas. Thanks. And all those foods sound very delicious. They are. They are. If you haven't had Trinidadian food, I, I, I highly recommend it for you. Lastly, what is the best advice you've ever received or advice that you would impart to others? So I think we've heard the term um, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, and I hate to be cliche, but but that's probably one of them. I've been lucky that I've had a lot of great mentors in my life and people who who've bestowed great knowledge with me. But I think that was 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 solidified even more when I was reading Ray Dalio's book, where he had a quote in there that said, you know, if you're not failing, you're not pushing yourself. And if you're not pushing yourself, you're not maximizing your potential. So I think, you know, in today's culture, the idea of being a failure is very scary. But, but I, I, I really do recommend for people to push yourself, right? And w- without, this, without the fear of failure, because, you know, the last thing you want to do is not be maximizing your potential. And I think some of the great uh, minds and innovators, the Elon Musk of the world, the Steve Jobs, so on and so forth, they were extremely good, Betty, at separating I failed from it failed, you know, Steve Jobs may have made, you know, several iterations of the iMac before, you know, he found the one that worked. Same thing for Elon Musk with, with, with Tesla and, you know, and, and his other startups. But they never, I don't think in their, in their minds, said that I'm a failure or I failed. So, you know, I, I've lived my life with, you know, you should take risks. Um, you know, if you're a little nervous, that, that's a good thing. That means you care. That means that you're right where you should be. You know, I still get sweaty palms a little bit when, when, when I'm, when I'm um, presenting to my investments committee. And, you know, that just lets me know that I care about it and that, that I'm pushing myself to continuously be better and better. Thank you for that. And that's actually interesting that you said the difference between it failed versus I failed. In Spanish, which I speak, we say se cayó or it fell versus I dropped it. <laughs> mm, right. It's a very important distinction. Yeah, you know, and I think just that simple mindset, you know, if you talk to a lot of founders and, and, and entrepreneurs, I think uh, I'll go out on a limb and say a lot of them have that that difference where they say it failed versus I failed. Um, they continuously iterate um, and are looking for the best combination to, to to hopefully be successful one day. Thank you so much for your time today, Sharmel. We really appreciate your time and your insights and you sharing your experience with us. 
I look forward to you participating in future Accelerator Investors events, hopefully one day very soon in person as well. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to participating in it as well. Thank you for listening to today's episode. As a reminder, we invite all listeners to join Accelerate Investors July 28th and 29th for our Women Investment Leader Symposium. For more information, go to accelerateinvestorsny.com forward slash women. The link is also available in the episode description. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm Betty Salonique, founder and CEO of Accelerate Investors, and you've been listening to CIO Conversations. You can follow Accelerate Investors on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you for listening.